Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 43. And this week, we're going to start the book of Luke. Last week, we did a whole week on Mark. Now, we're going to start with the book of Luke, and we're going to cover the first 11 or 12 chapters of the book of Luke. So, let's get started. A few things to keep in mind when reading the book of Luke. First, Luke portrays Jesus as the Son of Man. This stresses his humanity. Yes, Jesus was 100% God, and he was also 100% man. He is the perfect man. Second, Luke is written to a Greek audience. Luke's approach and view of Christ would appeal to a, a Greek audience who was constantly looking for the ideal man. Third, Luke likely wrote this book during Paul's Caesarean imprisonment around 57-58 AD, and that's in Luke chapter 20, excuse me, Acts chapter 24, verse 1 through chapter 26. So that might give you a little time reference. And probably soon after that, a few years after that, he wrote the book of Acts. Fourth, uh, Luke used many words that other gospel writers did not, and many of them show a wide literary background. He also used several medical and theological terms that are unique to the book of Luke. Fifth, more than 50% of Luke's gospel is unique, containing materials found nowhere else. Without Luke, certain periods of Christ's life would be unknown to us. Sixth, Luke is called the parable gospel. Of the roughly 50 collected parables found in all the Gospels, 35 are unique and only found in the book of Luke. Luke also has seven unique miracles that are not included in the other Gospels. 35, I think, is the total of the miracles. Seventh, Luke has a greater focus on individuals than do other Gospels. For example, Luke mentions 13 women uh, not found in the other Gospels. He pays a lot more attention to women and children than a lot of the other Gospels. So the first four verses of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, forms the book's prologue. And a prologue was what a Greek person would expect from a reputable historical work. His purpose is clear, Luke's is, to provide an orderly account of the life and ministry of Christ and to certify that he was the promised Messiah for Israel. He was the Son of God who became the Son of Man. Luke's emphasis on the sources he consulted lends credibility and certainty to his gospel records. Now, the rest of chapter 1 through all of chapter 2, Luke introduces us to the birth narratives of John and Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 5 to 25, we find the announcement to Zechariah, who would become John the Baptist's father. Both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were from the priestly line. They were both advanced in years and did not presently have any children. And so one day while working in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah with news that he would have a son, and they were to call his name John. He would be the forerunner for the Messiah. Zechariah was in disbelief of this miracle and asked for a sign. The angel gave him a sign, but it caused Zechariah the inconvenience and embarrassment as he was not able to speak for a total of nine months. Then in chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, that same angel Gabriel that appeared to Zechariah also appears to Mary. But his appearance to Mary would be about the birth of Jesus. Mary was told that she would have a son who would be the son of God. He would sit on the throne of his father David, and he would reign over the house of Israel forever. Now Mary did not ask whether this birth could happen. She asked how God might bring it about. Therefore, her faith contrasts with the disbelief of Zechariah. See, when Mary visited Elizabeth in Judah to no doubt tell her the news, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, which would be John the Baptist, leaped for joy at the prospect of being near the Son of God. When Elizabeth blesses Mary, she, Mary, burst into praise, offering a hymn of thanksgiving to God, which is known as Mary's Magnificat. And God was going to bring his Messiah into the world through a lowly servant like Mary. That says a lot. By the way, take a close look at verse 56. It says that after Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months, she went back to her own home. 
she and Joseph were not living together because they were not married yet. Now from verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 57 to 80, we have the birth of John. And at his birth, John was named by Zechariah, and God's judgment of silence on Zechariah was lifted. Now he could talk. And the words of Zechariah uh, that he, kind of like his first words after he could not talk for a while, are a carefully crafted poem or hymn to emphasize the fact that what God was doing in both John and Jesus was fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The heart of Zechariah's hymn focuses on the Abrahamic covenant, because by this covenant and this oath, God would fulfill all his promises. God was faithful to remember his covenant and was gracious in providing John to prepare the way for the Son. Now, chapter 2 begins the birth narratives of Jesus. Chapter 2 is some of the most well-known and most memorized scriptures. Let me look at the birth from a large perspective, though. Luke does three things with the birth account. First, he describes the political situation to explain why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This set Jesus' birth in a context of world history and anticipated his cosmic significance. Second, Luke connected Bethlehem with David to show that Jesus was qualified as Messiah. And then third, he presented Jesus' humble beginnings, and he so introduced the themes of Jesus' identification with the poor and with the rejected. Now, the announcement of the birth of Christ to the shepherds has tremendous theological significance, and I think many overlook this important thought. Shepherds were socially looked down upon in Jesus' day. Their work made them ceremonial unclean, and many had a reputation for being untrustworthy. Yet... God announced the Savior of the world to the shepherds first. The lowly shepherds, think about that, the nobodies of society. Of course, King David also started out as a lowly shepherd too, but God elevates him to the position of king. Jesus' career would, I think, follow the pattern of David almost. Humility, rejection, and constant opposition. By the way, take note of chapter 2, verse 11. This verse includes the names Savior, Christ, or Messiah, and Lord. These three names do not appear together in any other New Testament text. Now, after the shepherds saw Jesus, they spread the word as evangelists. The response of those who heard the words of the shepherds was characterized by amazement, a concept you'll find filtered throughout the Gospel of Luke. And so then Jesus is taken to the temple by his pious and law-abiding parents. Mary received purification after the birth, and Jesus is presented to the Lord as the firstborn son. Now, the main focus of this section that we're talking about, verses 22 to 38 of chapter 2, is on Simeon's prophecy. He declares that Jesus is God's salvation. He is the light for the nations and the glory for Israel. So for the first time, Jesus' mission is explicitly related to the Gentiles. Jesus' presence will result in the fall and rise of many in Israel. Um, the next time Jesus was visited the temple would be when he was 12 years old. Verses 41 through 50 give us the only inspired incident of Jesus' experiences during his childhood. It seems that even at this age, he knew that he was the Son of God and that his life would be spent pursuing the interests of the Father. The last few verses of chapter 2 are a fitting conclusion to the birth narrative because they highlight the dual nature of Jesus, both as Son of Mary and as Son of God. He was responsible and obedient to his human parents, but he also affirmed loyalty to his heavenly Father. The first 20 verses of chapter 3 speaks to the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. Because Jesus was apparently an ordinary man, it was necessary for John's ministry to point out that Jesus was the Messiah. So John's message was designed to prepare the nation of Israel spiritually for the appearance of the Messiah. Verses 21 and 22 tell us that John baptized Jesus in the waters of the Jordan. This act publicly identified and set Jesus apart as Messiah. Then verse 23 says that Jesus was around the age of 30 when he started his ministry. By the way, this verse has caused many to assume that Jesus was 33 and a half years old when he died. 
30 years old plus his three and a half years of ministry equals 33 and a half. However, the phrase about 30 years old can mean plus or minus 30. I tend to think that Jesus was older. And if I had time, I'd make a case for Jesus being about 35 when he died. But that's not for the podcast. That's for another day. The rest of chapter 3 is Jesus' genealogy as it related to Mary. And Luke likely included it at this point because it was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew, as you already read, placed his genealogy at the beginning to show that Jesus had by birth to occupy the throne, or had birthrights to occupy the throne. The genealogy in Luke lays emphasis on Jesus as a member of the human race, a son of Adam. Now in chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Notice that verse 2 of chapter 4 seems to indicate that he was tempted the entirety of 40 days in the wilderness. Maybe the three specific temptations were represented by three kinds of temptations that all humans were faced. The temptation revealed that Jesus was morally and spiritually qualified to be the Messiah and the Redeemer of mankind. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, Jesus officially begins his ministry. It's important to note verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. These two verses are summarizing a full year of the Lord's ministry. Only John's gospel gives us information about the Lord's first year. Luke doesn't. So when Luke begins this account, he's actually starting about a year in, after the events of the baptism and temptation. And the first specific incident recorded by Luke was the teaching by Jesus in his hometown, the synagogue of Nazareth. Using Isaiah 61, Jesus declares that he fulfilled the messianic prophecy. When he announced the fulfillment of this passage, Jesus revealed that he was predicting Um, He was predicting Messiah and that the time for God's gracious deliverer had arrived. This is one of only two instances in which Luke records the fulfillment of Scripture by the Messiah, the other being at the end of Luke, chapter 24, verse 44. These occurred at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry. They constitute what we call an inclusio, which suggests that the whole of Jesus' ministry was fulfillment of messianic prophecy, and that's true. The people did not receive the message of Jesus well, however, a foreshadowing of the rejection that was yet to come. The town of Capernaum, located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, became the base of operations for Jesus' ministry for the entire next year. And so from chapter 4, verse 31, through chapter 6, verse 11, Luke seems to focus on how Christ demonstrated his authority through the various miracles and signs he performed. Jesus demonstrated his authority over demons, over sickness and disease, over nature, over leprosy, and even over men and their traditions. Now in chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, we have the calling of the twelve. Of the four gospel writers, only Luke mentioned that Jesus prayed all night before calling the twelve. And after selecting the twelve and gathering the crowds, Jesus goes into teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew gives us the longer version of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, but Luke gives us a condensed version in verses 20 through 49 of chapter 6. And it seems the reason for the shorter sermon is that it's directed towards the disciples, especially those Jesus just chose as his 12. Whereas in Matthew, the sermon is given to the larger crowd. To put it into statistics, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is 137 verses, whereas Luke's Sermon on the Mount is 30 verses. And to start out his Sermon on the Mount, Luke begins with the four four Beatitudes and contrasts them with four woes. You see, the four Beatitudes are for those who would give up everything to follow Jesus. The four woes are those disciples who refuse to give up everything to follow Jesus or who stop following him after a period of time. Then in verse 27 through 38 of chapter 6, it's a section about the conduct of the disciples, still on the Sermon on the Mount here. Look at verses 31, 36, and 38, and you can see how they serve as important principles that are to govern the righteous behavior of a disciple. The main one is love. This type of behavior is what makes disciples distinct or different, and this type of behavior is what God wants his disciples to emulate. 
or to practice. The last section of chapter 6, verses 39 to 49, include five parables to teach the lesson of making the right choices, because it's a disciple's choice that will ultimately determine their character. Maybe you can see if you can identify all five parables in that section. Now, throughout this sermon on the mount, Jesus was not contrasting believers and unbelievers, but disciples who followed him and people who did not. Jesus and the gospel writers put more emphasis on the importance of people making decisions to follow Jesus, to learn from him, and to become wholehearted participants with him in his mission. Continuing on into chapter 7, Jesus shows compassion for people. In this chapter, Jesus reveals himself further to many people. Jesus met the needs of many, both physical and spiritual needs. Jesus shows compassion on a Gentile, a centurion servant in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. By the way, this incident shows us that Jesus' mission included the Gentiles, a fact that Luke's readers would have appreciated. Um, In chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, Jesus shows compassion to a widow by raising her son back to life. This miracle elevated the popular thinking about Jesus' authority, which led many to to have questions about Jesus and about his identity. And that leads right into the next section, which is chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Was he a prophet? Was he Elijah? Was he another former prophet? Those were the questions being asked. Even John the Baptist began to have questions about Jesus' identity. On the one hand, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy that indicated he was the Messiah. He was preaching righteousness, healing the sick, and casting out demons, even raising the dead. However, he was not fulfilling other messianic prophecies, such as freeing the captives, because John was captive, (laughs) judging Israel's enemies and restoring uh, the Davidic dynasty to power, things he would do later on, but not now. And as witnesses of Jesus Christ, Luke's readers would have faced many hostile challenges um, about Christ's identity. And so this section enables the disciples to counter these challenges more effectively. Now, the last part of chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, Jesus shows compassion on a sinful woman. Now, there's a contrast here that you don't want to miss. The love the woman lavished on Jesus contrasts with Simon through the story that Jesus tells. And it shows that Simon's lack of love for Jesus, this woman has so much love for him, but Simon has a lack of love for him. Now, chapter 8 begins with a unique insight into the reason for Jesus' continued ministry. You know, each gospel writer has a different viewpoint for the motivations for Jesus' ministry. In Luke, it was the concern for the multitudes that motivated Jesus. In Mark, it was the opposition of the religious leaders that motivated Jesus. And Matthew was presenting himself to the Jews as king was the reason for his ministry, what motivated him. All three of these factors directed Jesus in his ministry. All three of those are right. It's just here in Luke, it's a compassion for the crowds or compassion for the multitudes. Now, chapter 8 continues with two parables, um, the parable of the soils and the parable of the lamp. Uh, the parable of the soils or sower shows up in all three synoptic gospels. And the main focus of this parable and all the synoptics is not on the sower, Jesus and his disciples, or the seeds, which is the word of God. It's the soils on which the seed falls. Each soil yielded a different crop, as Jesus explained, which speaks to the different ways that people hear and respond to the word of God. The other parable of the lamp was to highlight the fact that just as a lamp is to yield its light, so also the life of a disciple is meant to be a light to others, a good testimony. Because spiritual apathy can result in losing ministry possibilities. This was true of the nation of Israel. It was also true of the disciples whom Jesus warned about the danger of losing the privilege of being used by God for such great purposes. Some more miracles finish out chapter 8, the stilling of the storm, the deliverance of a demon-possessed man, and the healing of a woman with a hemorrhage, and the raising of Jairus' daughter. Now, from chapter 9 and onward, it seems that Jesus is transitioning towards the cross. 
As chapter 9 opens, Jesus delegated to his disciples his authority to preach and heal. Those responsive, uh, excuse me, those responsive to his message would take care of them. Those who opposed the message, the disciples were to not waste their time with, to shake the dust off their sandals and keep going. In chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, it tells us that uh, it was at Bethsaida, which is the hometown of Andrew, Peter, and Philip, where Jesus did the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus challenges the 12 to wrestle with the fact that their resources to feed such a large number was, inadequ- was inadequate, and they needed to seek his help. After this event, Jesus wants to assess their disciples' belief in him. Peter boldly steps forward and makes the fantastic confirmation of Jesus' identity. But then Jesus instructs his disciples to tell no one. Why? You may wonder, while Jesus' command for secrecy might have to do with the fact that Jesus was conducting his ministry on a planned schedule that allowed for the events of rejection and suffering before giving a full-blown disclosure of his identity. I just have to say right here, this gives new meaning to the phrase, God's timing. (laughs) However, a few of those disciples were able to get a glimpse of the full disclosure of, of Christ, and that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Of the three synoptics, only Luke mentions that Jesus also prayed on the mountain at this time. Now, the point of the Transfiguration was all about the person of Jesus, not the other two, Moses and Elijah, who Peter was interested in. Funny and ironic, isn't it? The Son of God was permitting Peter to see him in a partial form of his glory, yet Peter is only concerned about Moses and Elijah. Priorities, Peter. You know, but we all can get lost in this at times. Now, towards the end of chapter 9, Jesus begins focusing on heading towards Jerusalem. And many of these events in the coming chapters were to prepare the disciples for their life and ministry after Jesus returned to heaven. He's kind of giving them instructions about what they need to do after he ascends to heaven. Now, in Luke, Jerusalem was the goal to which Jesus was moving towards, where his death and resurrection would become the focus of the gospel. In the book of Acts, which also Luke writes, Jerusalem was the launching pad for the church who took the message of the gospel to the whole world. And chapter 9 concludes with some interactions that Jesus had with the Samaritans. They do not receive his message well, and James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy them. The disciples were desperately in need for further instruction on compassion and love for their enemies, as Jesus had been demonstrating. Now, chapter 10, verses 1 through 24 of Luke is about the sending out of the 70. This event is only recorded in Luke. Um, Sending out disciples two by two meant that the messengers had companionship and help in an otherwise lonely endeavor. Their message was a final appeal for a response to Jesus. They were not to take a luggage or provision which stressed the brevity of the mission as well as the urgency of the mission. People's reaction to the disciples indicated whether they were responding positively or negatively to the Messiah and his message. In addition to this, there were three cities who were condemned for their lack of response to fight despite the fact that they witnessed the actual works and miracles of Christ right before their eyes. Now from chapter 10 verse 25 through chapter 11 verse 13, the focus is on three specific incidents that highlight the relationships of the disciples. First in chapter 10 verses 25, 26, and 27, um, the relationship there pictured is the relationship the disciples were to have with their neighbors. A lawyer had a question and Jesus answered the question following up with a parable, a fairly well-known one to us, the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan amplified the second commandment of the question the lawyer asked, love your neighbor, not the first one. It was the obvious commandment that his disciples had trouble with. The second incident in chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, concerns Mary and Martha. Now, don't miss the contrast of Jesus' teaching here. The parable of the Good Samaritan illustrated the meaning of the second commandment from the lawyer, which is love your neighbor, but the incident with Mary and Martha illustrated the disciples' need not to forget the first commandment, to love the Lord your God. 
Remember, Mary was distracted with serving. Excuse me, Martha was distracted with serving, but Mary was single-minded and sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. Now, let me just add this. Did you catch all of that? That's the beauty of context and reading a book through from cover to cover. The two greatest commandments, love your God and love your neighbor, are illustrated with two of the most well-known stories, the Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha. And many of us probably didn't know that they were all connected together as one. Anyway, I just want to point that out. Now, the third and final incident about the relationships is in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. This is the relationship of the disciples to God the Father. And the way that it is accomplished is through prayer. Their relationship to the Father, the disciples, was extremely important and is extremely important, especially since Jesus is going to be leaving them soon. And so he gave instructions to them on how to pray. Now, from 11.14 to the end of the chapter, the focus shifts from the relationships to opposition. Luke records the climactic points of Jesus' rejection in the remaining portion of this chapter. First, in chapter 11, verses 14 to 26, Jesus' Jewish opponents could not accept the truth that he is the Son of God. So they said his work was empowered by Satan. The second opposition in chapter 11, verses 29 through 36, was the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a miraculous sign, albeit of judgment, to the people of Nineveh. However, the people of Nineveh repented, and God forestalled the judgment on Nineveh. Jesus' appearance was also a sign. However, because Israel rejected Jesus' appearance, judgment could not be stalled. It would come upon this generation because they rejected him. The message of Christ is to be believed and shared, not hidden and kept secret. The third uh, opposition here, chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, opposition comes in the form of woes to the Pharisees. Um, They were concerned with having clean dishes, but they themselves were inwardly contaminated. That's verses 37 through 41. They're more interested in outward appearance than in the condition of their own hearts. They continue to disregard the true essence of the law and fail to practice the basic principles of love and justice. This is verse 42. Um, They loved prominent places of influence in in society, but in reality they were spiritually dead and therefore deadly on their influence of others. That's verses 43 and 44. They also burdened the people with legalistic requirements they themselves did not obey. That's verses 45 and 46. Furthermore, the Pharisees approved what their forefathers did in killing the prophets. And because of their flagrant and willful sin, they will be held responsible for all the bloodshed since creation. And that's represented by the first and last murders of Abel, in the beginning of the Old Testament, and Zechariah in the end of the Old Testament. The tragedy was that these legal experts of the law did not use the key of knowledge to enter the kingdom of heaven, and likewise they distorted the truth, which prevented others from entering the kingdom as well. You know, I think our prayer needs to be, Lord, push me out of the way if I am a hindrance for someone else coming to Christ. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time today. I wanted to get to chapter 12, but I'm not going to have time to do it today. So we'll start next week with chapter 12. I think you'll read a little bit into chapter 12 at the end of this week. Email any questions you have to BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.